0: Robert was wrong this morning. It's not the eleven hundred forty-second. I think it's more like eleven hundred forty-first. Just a little bit off, isn't it? Our twenty-fifth lesson on the subject of America's culture war is actually what we're on. So he was just a little off. And once again, we're continuing a sub sub series within that general topic. Uh, looking at how America's spiritual cancer has spread due to America having strayed far away from the biblical description of how we're to rear our children. as the kind of sub-subsection, and this is the ninth session in that sub-sub-series. So what is the goal of child rearing? uh, This is something I've tried to uh, hammer several times to make sure we have that, and we try to review that each each time I present uh, the next session. Uh, First of all, remember what it is not. It is not about our happiness uh, to have a a toy to to play with that we can discard whenever we get bored or frustrated with it. Uh, And it's not even really about our child's happiness, if you think about it. This is really not about making our child happy, as that would lead us to tend to want to give him anything he wants when he's not happy. Uh, to do whatever needs to be done to make him happy in the here and now which can spoil him and, and make him think that the world owes him something uh, it doesn't prepare him for the hard knocks of life which are inevitable uh, child rearing is not solely about making him behave on the outside uh, so that so that he for example maybe doesn't embarrass and embarrass us in public uh, that doesn't address the heart and it's the heart that's more important luke 6:45 it's not about being his friend, which is tempting, because we want our children to like us. But if that's our focus, then, then that will naturally cause us to treat our child as an equal, as a colleague rather than a subordinate who must be in submission to us and, and must learn from us and be disciplined by us. Uh, sure, you know, when, when he's been reared properly, when he's an adult, he likely will be a friend and an equal. Uh, But that is not what it's about when he's a child and we would do well to not think of him that way. It will lead to our failure to lead and his tendency to think he's big stuff and doesn't need to submit to authority when he's merely an immature child. Uh, The goal of childbearing is to prepare our child for God, for a life in service to God which will lead him to heaven. And so with regard to teaching, we've... Uh, considered Proverbs 22.6 several times. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So train up a child now to behave the way he should be then, and then when he gets there, he'll be that way as a general rule. It'll be a habit. It'll be habitual. Uh, He just won't be able to help it. That's just what he's going to do because that's what he's been trained to do. And so we look at our child's behavior, and we fast forward to what that same behavior would look like in its adult form down the line, and determine if that would be uh, unwise or sinful behavior, And, and if so, we go ahead and address the elementary version right now. Recall I've argued that the way to meet the ultimate goal of parenting can be broken down into three steps, teaching what they need to know about how to live a life uh, pleasing to God, then training them to do that, and then correcting them when they don't. And so my goal is to, has been to go through each of these steps, starting with teaching, and that's what we've been working on for nine sessions. Or this is the ninth session in that. So teaching those virtues that the Bible emphasizes that God's disciples are supposed to have. Characteristics that we want to be a part of our child's character when he's grown up. Uh, and at the age of accountability in previous sessions we've covered several specific virtues and uh, we might uh, in a a, either next session or the session after that do a quick review of these Um, and in our last session there we started looking at industriousness and diligence so we ended with a look at that, the idea of being a worker, not being idle and lazy. The person who labors, labors for himself, for his hungry mouth drives him on. Uh, this principle of, of hard, being a hard worker, being industrious and diligent is all over the place in the Bible whenever you just kind of study the Bible from that perspective. And remember that, that hard work was even part of paradise in the Garden of Eden. Uh, This hard work was not a result of sin. It was actually part of paradise before the first sin. Uh, So it's not a part of the curse. So we want our kids to work and be diligent about it, not be half-hearted, to work hard and get it done right. And so we have to teach them uh, how to work, how to work hard, and how to actually enjoy doing that. Uh, You see that as a problem today when we look out in the world? Is this a problem? The work ethic? People... I mean, even if people work, they don't tend to work because they enjoy it. Uh, They work as little as possible so they can get what they want and get back to what's important to them, and that is entertaining themselves, having a good time. Hedonism. Enjoying the pleasures of this life. That is not what it's about. The whole point of even doing any resting and, and entertainment is so that you can get back to what's important, and that is being diligent and industrious, working, Uh, in this great earth that God has given us. All right, number 12 uh, that we want want to start out with today then is this idea of piety. And what I mean by that is the idea of being religious. So being about our Father's business, as Jesus said. Uh, The Cambridge Dictionary defines this as a strong belief in God or a religion shown by your worship and behavior. Um, And... uh, For example, you see passages like 1 Timothy 5.4, If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home. Now notice, an atheist could, could actually have the bulk of all these virtues we've been looking at. An atheist could have those, right? But unlike an atheist, a disciple of Christ is going to be religious. It's going to be a distinguishing virtue. Uh, God's disciples practice religion. Whatever religious activity God stipulates that a disciple should do. And so he's at worship services. Every one of them. He's at Bible class. He's at Bible studies. He's at gospel meetings. He's at devotionals. He is religious. He is pious. And he's practicing the virtues that he's been taught. Um, he, He has it in the back of his mind that his motivation for doing so is because of God. Because he is Religious. Remember Matthew 6:33, someone who is pious will practice Jesus' command to seek first the church, putting prioritizing God's kingdom and doing right by him, how he defines what is right. That's what a, a, a follower of Christ, a disciple, will be doing. So he's going to be putting the, the church first in his life. It's going to be his number one priority. He's going to be thinking about advancing the kingdom through his time, uh, with his money, with his uh, discussions, with his decisions. He, his belief in the priority of the church will be seen uh, by, by his friends, for example, how often he is seen at worship and church-related activities. And so the pious man is involved in the work of the church. Uh, Whether he's teaching, whether he's leading in worship, helping in the the maintenance aspects of the building and grounds, locking the doors, whatever it might be. He is involved in his father's business. Uh, Notice Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. So... The uh, the pious man is spiritually minded. He's not earthly minded, and again, that perspective will be borne out in, in all of these kinds of ways. So, fear of losing a job or not having enough money, earthly concerns, will be seen as will not be seen as major motivations to him because he puts his trust in God. He actually believes what Jesus said you know, there in Matthew chapter six that God will take care of him if he prioritizes the church. So what will piety in a grown man or woman look like in its childlike version? Uh, If we want our children to be pious as adults, then what will we teach and train our children to be like? Well, then we'll pray as as a family often, especially during stressful times. Uh, The kids will will be taught to be at worship whenever the doors are open. Barring those extremely rare circumstances where where health, for instance, keeps them away. We'll teach the child that if there's worship, if there's Bible class, if there's church events, they will miss sports practices, they will miss sports games in order to be at the church event. We will teach them, but more than that, we will show them through our own actions that nothing takes precedence over the church. Uh, We'll teach them and expect them, when they receive money, to put God first. To give to Him first before anything else. To give to Him and give to Him generously as they prospered without exception. And that includes, notice, not just the money they receive from working, but what about all the money and gifts they receive for their birthday and for Christmas? That's prospering, isn't it? Whatever it might be, if they have prospered due to God's blessings, they must turn around and show their gratitude to God through giving back. They must, be, they must show piety. And so we'll teach them and expect them to read their Bibles daily, to pray regularly throughout the day, developing a practice of prayer, First Thessalonians 5.17, participating in worship. We would expect them, as they are able, to participate in worship by singing, by closing their eyes, so that they're in case they get if they tend to get distracted especially, bowing their heads, perhaps folding their hands during the prayers when they're younger to help keep their hands still, keep them focused, and then praying along in their own minds as they're older. Uh, When they're younger than four, when the sermon starts, and and probably not before, uh, perhaps we give them a Bible storybook to look at or allow them to draw a picture that has something to do with the lesson. But as they get older, we train them to learn how to listen to the preacher by Taking notes, for example, which they can start as early as four years old. uh, Listening for key words, making a mark whenever they hear that word, and then increasing the complexity of their notes as they get older. Writing down the main points of the lesson and so forth. And then as they're able to start finding Bible Bible passages in their Bibles, somewhere around seven or eight, then they should be taught to read along in their Bibles during the Scripture reading. And so, of course, we're, we're teaching piety. Uh, And if we're doing that, we would have a hard and fast rule about not playing games, not texting friends or surfing the Internet on their devices whenever it's worship time. That's not teaching piety at all. It's teaching irreverence for God and teaching kids that the sermon really doesn't matter. Uh, Instead, we teach them to be engaged in the worship at whatever level they can, of course. We're teaching them to be religious, interested in spiritual matters and religion, piety, Obviously, if they're not taught from a young age to be pious, then we can't, expect them, can't very well expect that of them whenever they're adults. You know, we just wouldn't expect that to be the case. If they're taught from a young age that some things are, in fact, more important than the church, in spite of Jesus' words in Matthew 6.33, then what would keep them from deciding what those exceptions might be? Just kind of making that decision on their own. If they have some kind of pressing worldly concern that's stressing them out, and, and whatever that is, is very important to them, then should we be surprised if our children as adults puts the, put those things first? Since they, we've trained them to think that way. So, who do we want them to be like? Uh, Cornelius, who scripture de- describes as a devout man and one who feared God and gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Acts chapter 10, verse 2. It was behavior that led to God, I remember sending Peter to him to teach him the truth. Uh, God wanted him as a disciple. How about Job, who Scripture describes, would rise early in the morning and worship God, offering burnt offerings for his children in case they sinned. Uh, Job 1:5 indicates that he did this regularly. Uh, Simeon in Luke 2:25, who is described as just and devout, who was told by the Holy Spirit that he's going to be able to see Christ before he died. And Anna, who the the text in Luke 2 says would never depart from the temple. She served God with fastings and prayer night and day. Verse 37, Uh, Daniel, who was so devout in his worship practices that he was unwilling to stop his practice of prayer for just 30 days as the king of the Medo-Persian Empire had commanded. Is that who we want our children to be like? That kind of piety? Or do we want them to be like those who the Hebrews writer alluded to who forsook the assembly of the saints in the first century? Or those Jews who Nehemiah rebuked in Nehemiah 13, 15 through 18 who who were working and conducting business instead of observing the Sabbath day? So if we love our children, then we know who we want them to be. Now the question is, are we willing to do what it takes to train them to be that way while they're children? Uh, More than once in my own childhood, I remember being taught lessons about uh, piety, maybe not with that specific term. I, I remember once being in the middle of a baseball game on a Wednesday night. And I was the pitcher, and, and really, I was really needed in that particular game. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't the only one that learned about what piety means on that evening. Uh, my coach and several, parent, several parents did as well. Uh, not that that was my parents' goal. I left the game, went to church, and then came right back to the game afterwards and caught the end of it. You know, it's, uh, it's funny how much of, of your childhood you forget. Um, between birth and the age of 16, there are 8,409,600 minutes. How many of those minutes do you remember? Well, I don't remember a lot of them, but I remember that specific game. And the important lesson I learned from that, and I even remember the effect that it had on my coach, if we want our children to be pious as God demands of His disciples, then we have to teach them to be pious while they're young. Holiness and its related words occur over 850 times in the Bible, making this concept a contender for the overall theme of the Bible. It occurs more than the word love in its related words, more than the word faith or belief, more than the word grace, righteous and righteousness, obedience, almost almost every other word. Clearly, this is an important concept to God. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. God's disciples are holy, set apart from the world for religious purposes, consecrated to the Lord, We don't belong in the world. Uh, We're merely pilgrims on the earth, not making the earth our home, uh, but instead looking towards a heavenly country, Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. We don't belong here. And so we know that the world is not going to accept us. In fact, it shouldn't accept us or something's wrong. If the world is accepting us, it probably means we're not being holy, right? God's disciples are not part of this world they're not going to be accepted if they're doing their job right. Mark it down. Uh, Remember what Jesus said in, in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus' disciples will be like the prophets of old. They're going to be rejected by the world. And so with that in mind... If we want to teach our children to be holy, wouldn't it make, would it make sense to encourage them to try to fit in with the world? You know, they are to be in the world, yes, but not of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Christians are called out of the world, which, which is the meaning of, of ecclesia, the Greek word for the church. So we have to prepare our kids for that and teach them to expect it and be comfortable with it. They need to prepare themselves for the fact that many times, I mean, let's face it, most of the time, being holy means being lonely. Isn't that true? So, how would we teach our kids about holiness and get them used to being comfortable with that? Well, obviously, we're going to teach our children to always do what's right, even when everyone else isn't doing what's right. Uh, When everyone else is copying assignments or cheating on exams, we're going to teach them to be set apart from everyone else in spite of the pressure that they might be feeling about that. When everyone else is ignoring the teacher and talking when the teacher said to be quiet, we're going to teach our children to be set apart from everybody else. When everyone else is looking at things they shouldn't or saying words they shouldn't, we're going to teach our kids that in order to be holy, many times they'll have to go against the crowd rather than fit in with them. If we teach our children from a a young age that it's important that they fit in with the world, then we're making it harder on them when they become Christians to be set apart from the world. And so we have to train up our children now in the way they will need to go then so that they'll be able to follow the right way then. And so we strongly discourage the temptation for a child to be cool and trying to be in the in crowd, the popular crowd that that everybody wants to be in. I mean, after all, isn't it true that the crowd that tends, that's the crowd that tends to be prideful and that that looks down on everybody else that isn't, they're not in that crowd? It's the group that does things that they shouldn't be doing, uh, that tends to do anything they can to rebel against authority. I mean, isn't that pretty much what defines, what marks that crowd? If we want our children to learn what it means to be holy, then we'd be careful to discourage our children from jumping on board the latest trends and lingo and behavior, the latest phrases, the latest hairstyles, the latest shoes and trendy jeans and trendy logos. I mean, no, there's nothing inherently sinful in many of these things. But we want to discourage our kids from having a desire to follow the crowd as though the crowd is worthy of being followed. Why would we discourage following the crowd? Well, because the crowd is usually headed in the wrong direction, Exodus 23.2. So instead, we teach our kids to view themselves as separate from the bulk of the world. Uh, Sadly, in many cases, even separate from most people in the church who tend to be lukewarm themselves, right? That's a sad commentary, but it's true. I'm not talking about their being uppity as though they're better than the world because they're more religious or something. Because, you know, they have to be taught humility as well as one of, the, one of the other virtues we already looked at. But I am talking about teaching them to be okay with not being accepted, just not fitting in in many cases. And no, I'm not talking about teaching them to intentionally do things that would make them weird. Where nobody can connect with them and nobody wants to talk to them. Because then they can't be a good influence to others. We want the things, that set us apart to be about for example purity and kindness and unselfishness so a, parent, a person can wear modest modern clothes and not be viewed as a weirdo and still not be all about fitting in with the world and so the key is to make sure that our child and we as parents are not striving to fit into the world as though the world is what matters uh, so let's face it the world's going to hell and we don't want to be carnal we don't want to be earthly focus. We have to teach our children to accept that they, are, that they are not part of the world and will be rejected by the world if they do what's right. But teach them that you know they can still be happy and fulfilled in spite of that. By, by so doing, our children will have a protective barrier around them that'll help insulate them from the world and, and its inevitable influences on them. So when the world rejects or makes fun of those who are humble and poor and filthy or handicapped in some way. We want our children to be set apart from the world, willing to be kind to all, in spite of how the world would view them about that. So if our kids don't care about fitting in with the world, then they're going to be much less likely to be influenced to be like the world. So they can then work on the world without the world working on them. They, They can still be all things to all men in order to save some, and at the same time, be free from all men, 1 Corinthians 9. I still remember an episode of the Cosby Show that I watched uh, as a kid, and and in the episode, Theo and his buddy Cockroach, I know that wasn't his real name, but that's what what they call him, they get kicked off of the cross-country team because when their team went to go eat at this burger joint, Theo and Cockroach were trying to get a laugh out of the team by making fun of an overweight girl that's working at this burger joint. And the girl was so humiliated that she ran off distraught. So the coach kicked those boys off the team for that behavior, and rightly so. And in the interest of of trying to be esteemed highly by their friends on the team, trying to be popular, trying to get a laugh, trying to fit in with the world, they had acted completely un like towards this girl and were unkind. All right, now, do we see situations like that as being typical among kids? I mean, if you just sit around and watch, this is typical. Kids do this all the time to each other, just variations of that. So when they get in a certain mode, kids are willing to do about anything in order to be accepted or admired by their peers, no matter what the cost is. That's dangerous, and they've got to be shaken out of that to realize they, this is not about fitting in with the world and having the world look up to them. Who remembers Jam's shorts from the 1980s? Some of y'all do, jam shorts. I still remember 1987. My family was moving from extremely small town, Hillbilly, Illinois, to suburban Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. And it was difficult for us kids because we had our friends in Illinois and so forth, and it was a major culture clash. This was a big change. And so I remember mom and dad were able to scrounge up enough money to get my sisters and I some new clothes in light of this move. Uh, some of which mom probably made herself, I don't remember. Well, jams were the in thing there in Hodunk, Illinois. And so and it really wasn't Hodunk, but it was named Hodunk, but it really was Hodunk. And so I, I was excited about, uh, about my first day of class there in Texas. I mean, I thought, hey, I may not have any friends here yet, uh, but at least I'm going to be hip and happening. I'm going to be hip and happening at this new school. I'm going to be hot stuff. Well, after over 30 years now, I still vividly remember the first day that I opened up the door to walk into my third grade class there in Texas. Within about one and a half seconds, I realized we had made a terrible mistake. You see, in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, jams were not the in thing, Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, Jeans and collared shirts or nice t-shirts were the in thing. And here I was in these outlandish shorts, uh, looking like a striking, fiery rose in the middle of the West Texas desert. And my reputation was set for the next four years or so, and not in a good way. Uh, well, I'll tell you, you know, I learned pretty quick to get comfortable not being in the in crowd, and looking back I see that it was an important lesson, one of the best really that I learned as a child. So we have to make sure our children are not focused on trying to fit in with and be recognized by the world, but instead view themselves uh, view themselves from the get-go as set apart. And in so doing, they won't be as influenced by those around them. Uh, remember Aaron in, in Exodus 32 when Moses was delayed coming down from Mount Sinai, and the people got impatient. were ready to start switching gods, and so they put the pressure on Aaron to make an idol. So what did he do? He stood up, right, and said, no, we can't do this, guys. No, he gave in. He gave in to the crowd around him. He made that golden calf at their request. Instead of standing firm and doing the will of God, uh, even though he would have been unpopular in doing so. Uh, King Saul, once again, serves as an example of a, of a lack of virtue. You get a lot of mileage out of, out of his life as preachers. So he cared more about what the people thought of him, making them happy. And so he gave in and did things that he shouldn't time and again instead of helping them to keep their minds on God and subsequently being holy. All right, number 14, having knowledge, knowledgeable. Uh, Easily one of the themes of the book of Proverbs. The word appears 42 times in that 31 chapter book. Uh, Keep in mind that not only is Proverbs a collection of wise sayings, but more specifically, by and large, this book is a compendium of information that Solomon really wants his children to know. So this is about a a parent, an inspired parent, teaching what needs to be taught to his child. So throughout the book, he reminds uh, reminds us of that point by saying the words, my son, 23 times in this book. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Receive my words. And in this book of advice for his children, he emphasizes the importance of, of a child gaining knowledge over and over. Receive my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. Wise people, store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. <clears throat> Proverbs 12:1: whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. But he who hates correction is stupid. Uh, Proverbs 15, 14, whoever loves instruction, oh wait, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Proverbs 23, 12, apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. So over and over, gaining knowledge is emphasized. Proverbs two ten encourages us to develop an appetite for knowledge, where we view it as pleasant to our souls, the text says. And that is what we have to do for our children as parents, help them to develop a love of knowledge, of being instructed, learning things. Proverbs 19.27 indicates that instruction is what leads to knowledge. And so we have to work on our instruction, uh, doing it in such a way that our kids learn to love gaining knowledge, if we show frustration all the time when we're trying to explain something uh, because our kids aren't getting what we're saying, uh, or we view teaching our kids as a burden uh, where where they think that we just really don't want to take the time to teach them, or our method of instruction is boring or goes over their heads, Uh, Maybe just lecturing our kids all the the time instead of trying to figure out ways to inspire them to learn and retain the information that we want to pass on to them. So essentially, if we make instruction a bad experience for our children, then we shouldn't be surprised if they don't gain more knowledge, if they remain ignorant. Uh, Because after all, who would want to learn in such an environment? Who would want to ask questions to get a deeper insight on a subject? if he feels like he's going to get a lecture or have his head bitten off about it. So we want our children to gain knowledge. And so we school them. Not not so that they can get into college or get a good job. Uh, Those are fine and good, but they're not the primary reason for schooling. The purpose of their learning is to gain knowledge. It's not to get a good grade. Uh, The grade is simply supposed to help teachers know if a child is gaining the knowledge he needs. So many a child, uh, myself included when I was young, uh, gets the wrong idea about school and grades. I mean, I was fixated on getting the highest score possible all the way from elementary all the way through college. And it wasn't until the doctoral level that I realized that so many things, I realized so many things had not sunk in from the earlier years of my instruction because I hadn't been focused on gaining and retaining knowledge, but instead I was focused more on competition. And so we instruct our kids in anything and everything and in many ways, filling up their minds with knowledge, information that will be useful later, even if they don't completely understand it now. So what we're talking about is education teaching them the things that they need to know to live their lives, information that they'll need to fulfill their roles in the home that God has given them, information that they'll need to be able to understand the world around them and communicate effectively with those around them, Uh, information about history that will help them not repeat the mistakes of the past, information that they'll need in order to take care of their bodies, their temples, so that they can serve the Lord most effectively without having terrible health and a shortened life. And, of course, knowledge about God and His Word, which is essential to their salvation. Now, all the while, if we're smart, we'll keep in the back of our minds that knowledge puffs up. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Pride is likely to result from knowledge growth. We can just mark it down. So kids can start thinking that their knowledge makes them better than others. Uh, who, are, who are, you know, these lesser knowledge children around them? You know, and they start thinking they're pretty great. I mean, I, I am a gift to humanity. Uh, whenever they condescend to speak to the masses, they feel like they're... And so we have to... We have, a lot of the older ladies start chuckling, because you've seen this a lot. Uh, so, you know, we have to balance their knowledge growth with humility, reminding them that there's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes nine they are no more special than any of God's creatures, and they're not nearly as knowledgeable as many of them. And even of those they are as knowledgeable as, there are other abilities that those, that those others have that they don't have. And so we help them to learn humility and keep perspective on this. Remember, the goal of parenting is to prepare our children for a life and afterlife in God's service. Knowledge is crucial to meeting that objective. Romans 10, 2-3... For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. Do we see people doing that today? They're kind of making their own decision about what's right and wrong. They haven't submitted to the righteousness of God. I mean, his righteousness, how he defines it. Remember in Acts 26, when Festus told Paul, "You know, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Okay, so how did Paul respond? Okay, paraphrasing, he said, No, sir, I have gained knowledge about the truth, and that is allowing me to speak rationally to you about that. I'm imparting to you knowledge. So without Paul gaining knowledge, he could not reason with Festus. You're not going to be able to do that without knowledge. You know, kids are excellent at soaking up knowledge. Uh, We who are older know that it's a lot harder to learn something, uh, to gain more knowledge that we can retain the older we get. Uh, whether it's from our brains getting older or just having too many other things on our minds uh, or the lack of time to really just train ourselves to know something, whatever it may be, uh, we all know we have more trouble soaking up new things. But kids, I mean, they soak up knowledge. And so we as parents have to take advantage of that. Uh, Make sure that they are exposed to the things that we want them to know. And of course not exposed to those things we don't want them to know about until they're ready. And so that idea, helping our kids to gain knowledge, is why we school them, we educate them. It's, it's why uh, here at Panama Street we do kids prep on Sunday nights. Uh, kids, kids don't necessarily know what to do with the knowledge that they're gaining, uh, the things that they're memorizing, and kids prep, Bible facts, and so forth. But they can learn that later. They're gaining knowledge. Um, I'm reminded of an incident that happened... When I was doing youth ministry in Texas, and I was working diligently with the kids in the youth group on memorizing Bible passages that I felt like they needed to know to be ready to evangelize and defend the truth. Well, during one quarter at this congregation that I was at, the men at the congregation allowed a certain man to teach the junior high class. Uh, This man I I would describe as either ignorant about the truth or a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, Both options very dangerous. Well, he proceeded to try to teach the kids in the class that instrumental music in worship is okay. It's not a big deal. It's just tradition that keeps us from using instruments. Well, one of the seventh graders in the class had gained the knowledge that he needed for that class. And so he asked the teacher, what about John 4.24? I mean, it says we're supposed to worship God in truth. And truth is God's word, John 17.17, 17, two of the passages he had memorized. So how do we have authority to use instruments? Okay, well, you know, the kids told me later this teacher was just flummoxed by that. And he proceeded to respond to the kids by saying, well, you don't really believe that, do you? That was his response. But notice to the kids, they had already been given the knowledge about what was going to happen in that situation. <laughs> they already knew this wasn't a matter of what the truth is. It's that people don't want to believe the truth. That's the issue. And he, he said it. You don't really believe that. Well, he didn't. He didn't believe what the Bible says about it. The important thing to me was these kids gained the knowledge that they needed to be able to survive spiritually. That's what's important. We're trying to get these kids ready to be able to survive spiritually. So a parent has to make it their business to make sure his children are gaining knowledge that is going to help them to survive spiritually and physically. If a person has understanding, he'll seek knowledge, because he knows how invaluable it is in life. So how will they gain knowledge? Well, they'll gain knowledge from instruction by teachers. They'll gain knowledge from their peers, whether or not we like that. They'll gain knowledge from TV and and movies, unfortunately. Uh, They'll gain knowledge from experience. But no doubt a major source of knowledge, of course, is going to come from what they read. Uh, It's interesting that God chose to preserve His words through the written word. So without the ability to read, a person would have to be able to trust others to be telling them the truth about what the Bible says. So they wouldn't be able to search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so, Acts 17.11. And so notice, God apparently expects His disciples to be literate. Uh, since revelation from God is is not being confirmed through miracles by prophets today, then a person cannot solely rely on preachers or others to determine truth. A person has to be able to study the Bible for himself. So we want our children to be able to gain knowledge from personally consulting the Bible as well as from studying reliable materials in written form. So society is moving more and more away from the written word, uh, moving towards images and videos, but we all know that most of the best information can only be found in written form. I mean, let's just, let's just acknowledge that. Most modern videos and images cannot be counted on to convey truth. So bottom line, is crucial that our children not only be able to read, but actually enjoy reading if we, if we want them to gain the knowledge that they need to have. So if a child struggles with reading uh, quickly, uh, we need to find out ways to help with that. If a child struggles wanting to read, we need to find books that will interest the child so he learns to love it. Uh, I, I personally am proof positive that a love of reading can be taught where it once was non-existent. I hated reading up into college. I had the biggest trouble staying focused. I'm a visual learner and so reading was brutal. Uh, I'd find myself reading the same lines over and over and over while my mind wandered off and it would take me forever to read something. So two things had to happen to change that. Number one, I had to learn some tricks for reading faster that my parents helped me discover. And number two, I had to find a series that I enjoyed so much that I was able to start flying through it. And it unlocked a part of my brain that, said, that told me, hey, you can do this. Here's how we go. You know, here's how you do it. And, and it caused me to realize, oh, reading doesn't stink. I actually enjoy this. This is good stuff. So had that not happened, I could not have worked, for example, at AP because there's a lot of reading involved in that job. Uh, but more importantly, I wouldn't have gained nearly as much knowledge that, that I needed. Uh, since I've now read hundreds of valuable books since those early years of college. And most importantly, without developing a love of reading. I mean, let's face it, I wouldn't have read the Bible nearly as much. I mean, I had to develop a love of reading before I was willing to do that. It was, it was just too hard for me. So it is crucial that we find ways to get our kids to love reading if we want them to gain the knowledge God wants them to gain. All right, so we'll uh, begin on our next one, our next virtue, next time. I expected we might actually finish the virtues today, but it looks like we're going to have at least one more if we move on to step two, Mr. Frank. i will be happy to know. All right, so I, as I said before, every child is, is going to be lacking in these virtues. And so we shouldn't feel bad about ourselves when we see our children being deficient in a virtue when he's little. We should, however, be concerned about his lack of that virtue and should feel bad about ourselves if we aren't taking it seriously, if we haven't taken immediate, effective steps to rectify that problem. So if our child is not showing significant improvement in a virtue every day, then either we're not staying on it because of whatever we've got going on in our lives, uh, in which case we better adjust our priorities. Uh, God has given us a soul to shape and how and how we do so will affect more than just Him. It's going to affect His children and His children's children and His children's children's children and so on. Uh, it's also possible that, that we are staying on it but perhaps aren't using an effective method and we have to be humble enough to realize that. That maybe we need to, to try something different or get counsel from someone who either has it right with their kids or seems to be uh, either they got it right already with your kids or seems to be maybe getting it right with their kids, getting whatever input or counsel we might need uh, that, again, Proverbs emphasizes over and over and over. All right, lots of information that we can, uh, we'll can be able to continue to um, look at and uh, hopefully knowledge gained about this subject. It's amazing to me, again, how much the Bible teaches on this subject that I never really thought about it that way. Uh, for, for many years. If you're not a member of the Lord's Church, we always want to give you an opportunity to become a Christian and uh, following the simple plan that God delineates in Scripture, hearing the good news about Jesus being the Son of God, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24, turning from your sins and repentance, uh, trying to not do those things that will be displeasing to God, making things right uh, if you uh, have some kind of sin that, that needs to be made right with someone in some way, Matthew 3:8. Confessing Christ verbally with your mouth, Romans 10, 9, and 10, and then being immersed in water for the remission of sins, being added to the one church of the Bible where you must remain faithful to the end if you re- wish to receive a crown of life. If that's something you'd like to do today, come on forward now while we stand and sing.
1: I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, I'll follow him. Please be seated. next song will be number 111. If you did not have the opportunity to take up the Lord's Supper today, it has been left prepared for you this evening. Uh, if you would, please make your way to the front during the song. And if you're not able to, just please raise your hand whenever uh, uh, the person who's going to be serving comes forward and you can be served where you're at. Number 111. We'll sing verses 1 and 2 my jesus i love thee i know thou art mine for